Well, open up your Bibles once again to John chapter 11. We looked last Sunday at the rising or raising of Lazarus, more accurately the raising of, because he certainly didn't do it on his own. He responded to a call, an effectual call. And this time we look at the, the outline title, Jesus Withdraws to Ephraim, but we're still in John 11, verses 45 to 54. We're not going to quite finish John 11 here this afternoon, but we're going to see what came next here. Many of the Jews which came to Mary and had seen, and I like to underline some of these words myself, note that these Jews came, note that they had seen, and then notice what comes next. Then many of the Jews which came to Mary and had seen the things which Jesus did believed on him. They didn't believe on their own. They didn't choose to believe. They saw these things that Jesus had done. And this phrase, believed on him, is not one that they, is, it speaks of a personal action. It is a response to the things that came before it in that sentence. Their response to what they had seen was belief. But some of them went their ways to the Pharisees and told them what things Jesus had done. Then gathered the chief priests and the Pharisees a council and said, What do we? It's interesting how many times that question's come up in the last three or four weeks. What shall we do? What do we? For this man doeth many miracles. What they had witnessed, even the ones who walked away in disbelief, what they had witnessed spurned some kind of change. It didn't leave anybody the way they were before. And they say here, if we let him thus alone, all men will believe on him, and the Romans shall come and take away both our place and our nation. And one of them, called Caiaphas, being the high priest that same year, said unto them, Ye know nothing at all, nor consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people, and that the whole nation perish not. And this spake he not of himself, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus should die for that nation. And not for that nation only, but that also he should gather together in one the children of God that were scattered abroad. Then from that day forth they took counsel together for to put him to death. Not Caiaphas, but Jesus. Jesus therefore walked no more openly among the Jews, but went thence unto a country near the wilderness into a city called Ephraim, and there continued with his disciples. Ephraim is named, of course, after Joseph's son, which... Providentially, we read not too long ago in our Genesis study. You might recall, because I said it quite a few times, his name it speaks of fruitfulness. Directly, it means double ash heap, or I shall be doubly fruitful. Lines up well with the first verse of what we see here today. Those Jews, some of those Jews which came and had seen the things which Jesus did, believed on him. This is a fruitfulness of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ during his ministry. Jesus is now heading into a very fruitful season, but also one that carries with it the looming threat of death, and it will carry that going forward. They've scoffed at him, they've jeered at him, they've mocked him, they've tried to trap him thus far, but from this moment forward, we're racing toward that Passion Week that we call it. And I know that's more of a worldly phrase, but you'll see that they're not too far off in calling it that. And it's not the passion of man, but the passion of God that keeps driving Jesus as a sheep brought dumb to the shearer, dumb to the slaughter, who never spoke against anything that was taking place. It was his passion and his love and his desire for the will of God that pursued all through that week. So I'm going to keep calling it Passion Week. But where we are now going forward 
The threat of death is always going to follow where Jesus goes. This is lingering. Even his enemies know what will happen if he continues. They don't have a full grasp yet of what will happen when he goes to the cross. We know that it was for our sakes, and thankfully it was the very purpose he came for, this death that he's now threatened with. Ephraim was tentatively, has tentatively been identified as a place 12 miles or so north of Bethany, which is where this miracle had just happened, near where the high plateau breaks away in rugged terrain leading down to the Jordan Valley, according to commentator Wycliffe. We have three points to this outline, this event. First, a new walk for Lazarus. We're not done with him. We'll see him again in John 12. Secondly, a witness for the Jews. And thirdly, a turning point for the Pharisees. First and foremost, a new walk for Lazarus. Lazarus was once dead and now made alive. Death had been conquered for him. What could Lazarus do against death? I know this is a little review for those who were here, but he could do nothing except obediently continue to serve death behind the stone that blocked his tomb. Remaining dead. I won't go through all the details we talked about last week, but we talked about just how quickly the body faithfully and obediently follows the marching orders God had spoken in the garden to the body after death. And it goes quick. When she says he stinketh in four days, beloved, listen to that message last week and you'll know why. The things our body naturally, I mean, really, think of the wonder of it all. All of this turns off and yet the body knows instinctively exactly what to do. And that's what was set in motion. He couldn't fight against it. He couldn't argue. He couldn't, I'm choosing Jesus. I don't want to die. That's not in man's wheelhouse. Not on the utility belt. Not a muscle that can be worked or trained or strengthened. There was nothing there for Lazarus. Death was his. Romans 3.23, For all have sinned, you, me, we, and come short of the glory of God. Death was beaten by Jesus. Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Who called Lazarus out? Jesus did. Lazarus, come forth, he says. It wasn't anybody in the crowd. It wasn't somebody of the church. You know, there were times already in the Lord's ministry, particularly when they multiplied the bread and the fish, when Jesus worked the miracle, but the church distributed. But you notice here in John 11, the church didn't save Lazarus. Jesus did. Jesus didn't perform the miracle and then have the church do any of the work. He did it all. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. This is the truth of Scripture. There was nothing in the first 44 verses of John 11 for the church to do except what we read that they did. Are you sure we ought to go there? We might get stoned. What's the old doubter say? Well, let's just go with Jesus and we'll all die. That's all we are able to do. We can believe. We can have faith. This is what Mary and Martha do, the second stage of what we looked at last week. The first stage was the church that said we shouldn't go. The second, and the church still does that, by the way. The second stage was Mary and Martha who faithfully went to Jesus individually on their knees and said, if you had but been here, my brother would yet live. And Martha even says, I believe that he will be raised again in the resurrection and that he will live forevermore. 
But he could still be alive right here, right now. Mary mournfully with the same message. But Jesus does all the work until Lazarus comes forth and then he says, loose him, let him go. Beloved, that's not the message here, so I won't stay on it long. We're having trouble, our churches today, with the loose them and let them go part. We keep seeing pictures on Facebook of people who once had tattoos that are saved and were challenged. Would you sit next to this one? Would you go to a church where this person was? What if all of our sins were on the outside of our flesh? It shouldn't even be a hesitation. If that's a child of the king, that's my sister. That's my brother. I don't have a decision in the matter. We are called to loose and let go he who he has called forth. We are not called to bound one another down with the sins of our past. They are as far as the east is from the west. Sorry, some pulpits I've been in, it's different, but that's the east and that's the west, in case everybody wondered. A new walk for Lazarus. He must be born again. Lazarus now had a new walk, and as a result, it was bringing a lot of attention to his Savior. And as we mentioned last time, they wouldn't mind seeing Lazarus dead too. If you want to see that, you can look in John 12, but we'll likely see it next time. They were ready to kill Lazarus too. This is the despicableness of religion. It has to be by the letter. There's no way around it. This is how it has to be. And it wasn't just the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the scribes who were the lawyers interpreting the law. It's the Roman Catholic Church, the Presbyterian Church. It's the Jews. It's all of us who give in to religion over faith. It's got to be the way it always was or it can't be. Well, Jesus was something new, wasn't he? It had been foretold, but they'd never seen anything like it before. And then they said no. Therefore, no. It can't be like you because you're something we've never seen before. God has never done this before. He will never do it. I wonder if, the, if light responded that way. Back in Genesis 1. Light be, hold on! I never was before. I'm not going to be now. And God had to plead with, with light. No, no, I said light be. Yeah, I heard you. But I don't agree. Because I've never had to be before. Like that light we were working on at lunch. I've always flickered, and I'm going to keep flickering, and that's just how it is. But it was God that said, light be. And it was God that said, Lazarus, come forth. And there is no bickering and arguing. There's only response. Romans 6, verses 1 through 4. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead in sin live any longer therein? We were dead in sin. We weren't living to begin with. Know ye not that so many of us, as were baptized into Jesus Christ, were baptized into his own death? Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Lazarus has a new walk. And if you are here and born again, you have a new walk. And if you've been saved for 60 years and never done the new walk, start now. Repent. Repent. You aren't to go the way you always went. Could you imagine knowing of the events of Lazarus' death and then see him alive on the street the following week? This wasn't a, a behind-closed-doors event. 
And, and, and really, from the whole scope of things, no one in the church could have stopped it and kept it a private event. He was dead four days. The, the city knew. The synagogue knew. People in the community knew. The mourners were all, the wailers and mourners were already brought in. Can you imagine as the mourners and the wailers were getting dressed that day? Where are you going, honey? Well, Lazarus died. Oh, how many people did that one tell? Lazarus is dead. Everybody knows it, but now he's alive. I wonder what his attitude was like. Oh, man. I'm alive now. Doggone. I got to pay taxes again. I got to come up with what I'm going to eat for supper. Have you met my two sisters? They bicker all the time. Lainey and Lit I mean, Martha and Mary. One's cumbered about with all these things. The other one's always just cleaning feet. I got to put up with them again. I'm alive again, Isaac. Woe is me. All things are against me. No, that's just some Baptist. If you're born again, you're as alive as Lazarus was in this moment. 24 hours after he's raised from the dead. I doubt Lazarus was at all gloomy. I bet Lazarus could tell how much he stunk. He had that napkin on his face. He could smell it first. You imagine? that? <laughs> no, that's probably too much. I'm thinking if you outside that tomb and you hear Lazarus in there, whoo, who stinks? So, somebody died on my face. It was you, Lazarus. You imagine how he told people about how he was in that tomb for four days, didn't eat and drink. How could he possibly have been alive? And people say, what could a dead man do? And he's like, I couldn't do a thing. I was dead. But I'm alive now. And in 12, John 12, 2, I'm hungry. And I'm eating with Jesus. It is the privilege and duty of every Christian to be just like Lazarus, beloved. Remember, as I said last week, he is the most relatable character for the born-again believer in this book. Why wouldn't we carry that story in our chest every single day of our lives? Can you imagine meeting Lazarus on the street? He's just shaking hands. Did you know I was dead? And they say, well, I don't know if we should shake hands. Shouldn't you be saying unclean? No, I, I don't have to do that because I'm alive. And the sickness is gone. I'm alive. Jesus Christ knew my name and called me forth. He's just jumping around and bouncing off the walls. He's so happy. You know what he didn't do? I can't believe you do Christmas. I can't believe you don't wear a head covering. I can't believe you don't tithe. I can't believe you have debt. I can't believe, I can't believe, I can't believe. If you can't believe you're not a believer, you won't be in the kingdom of heaven. You must be born again for that. Beloved, we have to exercise discernment. Because all of our sister churches are coming undone over these things which are legalistic, pharisaical, sadduceical. And it's not what we've been born again to do. Have we been so labored by the world that we would rather cry out, all these things are against me than proclaim that El Shaddai is for me? You all laughed when I said Lazarus would walk around Boo-hooing about all the things he'd have to go through again, but you know that's not what he would have done. Why do we? The mold thing over there, that's an issue, it's a problem. And I was cumbered about with it for days, don't get me wrong. But our God has this. 
Our God has this. We sold a house and tithe off of it as we're commanded to. I know we've got the start of this because God calls for us to be faithful and revealed how he's going to use some of it. I don't say that to brag. I could have used that money, but it's his. Beloved, he is revealing unto us his love, his passion, and his plan for us every day. And sometimes it hurts because we're not as we should be or we're not prepared to receive it. We're not mindful of the things that God is doing in our lives. It doesn't necessarily mean that we're steeped in sin. It could just mean that we're cumbered about of many things and we're missing the work that he is doing. Lazarus was given both life and health. He was returned into the world not just to remain sick. He had work to do. Secondly, a witness for the Jews. Remember, Excuse me, remember that old man, that old rich man from Luke 16 that we talked about a few weeks back. Well, this is what he said to Abraham in Luke 16, verses 27 through 31. I pray thee therefore, Father, that thou wouldest send him to my father's house, for I have five brethren, that he may testify unto them, lest they also come into this place of torment. And Abraham saith unto him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. And he said unto him, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. Carefully, again, look at our text. How does it start? Many of the Jews which came to Mary had seen the things that Jesus did and believed on him. These were Jews, not Gentiles. These were Jews likely educated well on the books of the prophets, educated well that a Messiah was coming. And what was revealed unto them was that he was here. But to the rich man's credit, there were a portion who did not believe even though a dead man rose from the dead. We see that of the Jews in this crowd, many believed. Some of them went their way. Many believed, but some of them went their way. Let me add a word in there. Their own Wait. In many of the healings we've seen, such as Bartimaeus, those who were healed and caused to believe had an understanding of a coming Messiah. Thus far, because we're looking at his ministry, he's ministering mostly to Jews. Not all, but mostly to Jews. They had an understanding that the Messiah was coming. They had heard once of Moses and the prophets. Look at Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, verses 46 and 47. Blind Bartimaeus is one of my favorite characters to teach. We're just going to simply read the account. Mark 10, verse 46 and 47. They, Jesus and his disciples, came to Jericho. And as he went out of Jericho with his disciples and a great number of people, blind Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, sat by the highway side begging. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me. What did he say? He didn't just call Jesus by name. He called Jesus by title. Jesus, thou son of David. This blind beggar knew who the Messiah was going to be. And he recognized him. This blind man could see better than some in the crowd. See, better than the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the scribes who interpreted the law. We see that some believed, 
and many went their own way. They had heard, they, they, they had been offered a general call which was made effectual by the Holy Spirit, or in these cases, the literal hand of the Son of God. Was Jesus incapable of saving all of the Jews in the crowd that day? I know it's a silly question. We have to address it. Were only some made to believe because Jesus was incapable of causing all of them to believe? No more than he would have been incapable of calling forth every dead body from his or her grave if he simply said, come forth. The power of God is not limited by a doctrine of any kind, but specifically the doctrine of election does not limit the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. His limit is by the design of the Father, the will of the Father, not by His power. Matthew Henry wrote, It is a good step toward raising a soul to spiritual life when the stone is taken away. When prejudices are removed and got over, and way is made for the Word to enter into the heart. If we take Christ's word and rely on his power and faithfulness, we shall see the glory of God and be happy in the sight. Our Lord Jesus has taught us by his own example to call God Father in prayer and to draw nigh to him as children to a father with humble reverence, yet with holy boldness. He openly made this address to God with uplifted eyes and loud voice that they might be convinced the Father had sent him as his beloved Son into the world, and specifically in this moment to call Lazarus forth from the grave. He could have raised Lazarus by the silent exertion of his power and will and the unseen working of the Spirit of life, but he did it by a loud call that was a figure of the gospel call by which dead souls are brought out of the grave of sin. John Trapp wrote, Low reprobates will not believe, though one rose from the dead to them. If our gospel be hid, it be hid from them which are lost. When you think, and I think we should, when you think of the effectual call being as such as Jesus himself crying out, so and so come forth, how dare we ever hold back the general call? which is just us telling people who Jesus is. How dare we ever think that we can hold such a message into ourselves? If we truly know the value of that message, it cannot be hid. It shall not be. It shan't not be hid. To our own shame, if it be hid, that we would hold such a message captive from those who are plummeting into hell this same hour. Again, it's not because giving them that message will save them, but it's the beginning of understanding. It is the beginning of a deeper conversation that the Holy Spirit will speak to directly. Come forth! It is the command of our Lord and Savior. It is not an opinion of man that we should witness. It is a command of the Creator of the very universe. How dare we think we cannot? We see, lastly, a turning point for the Pharisees. Because they see this message, and they see the response of this message. They don't believe it, but they see it. They know it's real. These, they don't get to be ignoramuses, agnostics. They actually see this is happening. They have a knowledge that something big is afoot. And this man must die. 
And remember, in John 12, they even come to the conclusion, maybe Lazarus must die too. From that day forth, they took counsel together for to put Jesus to death, our text says. For the same reason in which some were led to believe, others, as this show of affection for God the Father, were led to rebel. And we need to get this understanding. They're not simply rejecting the message of Christ. They are rebelling against God. It's not simply, no thank you. It's crucify Him, crucify Him. Or like Deacon Stephen experienced. Have you ever seen anybody do this? Sorry if I'm super loud. I'm not faking it. Go talk to them about Saturnalia and you will. Go talk to them about some hard sins that have been glossed over by niceties of the world and you will begin to see man stop his ears just like they did then. Recently, and it's not in this outline, so I don't have his name, but a week ago, a Turkish prime minister spoke against Israel saying they can no longer rebel and claim things that aren't their own. And he finishes the poem that he's reciting with the words, the wrath of God. Then he turned around, fainted, and everybody saw his head bounce off the marble floor and died of a heart attack. God is still real. That didn't happen in 23 AD. It happened in 2023 AD, a week and a half ago. God is not mocked. It's not a simple no thank you. It is a direct mocking of God. You see the hatred that's in these guys' hearts immediately? He has to die. Jesus said it would be this way. He told them way back when, when he was talking about being the living bread, that they sought to kill him just a, a few pages before they actually did because he knew the hearts of men. They love darkness and they kind of don't like light. No, they hate light. They reject light. They rebel against light. Why? Because light reveals what's hidden in dark places. Beloved, it's not a simple no thank you. How many of us will spend tomorrow quietly weeping? I will. The only family members that I have that don't do what everyone's going to do tomorrow are sitting right here. How many of us will quietly ponder tomorrow? Yeah, I, the more I think about it, the more I think it's very likely the Lord will come back on a day like that because it's the day we least look for Him, we least watch, and we least work. Us. Not just them, but us. Because we're afraid to offend. We're afraid to upset. We're afraid to be considered zealots. I know we may not realize this, but He was considered pretty passionate about the will of God. Yeah. Simon Peter was a zealot. Simon Zelotes literally was a zealot. John and James, Andrew, even old Doubton Thomas that everybody likes to call him, but I don't believe it. He was a zealot. He'd seen the marks. Have you seen the marks? Do you know if Jesus died for you? Do you believe him to be your Lord and Savior? Are you a fan? or a follower. We've spent four chapters of Luke talking about discipleship. Every lesson for a month and a half has been on discipleship. You know the cost. You know the requirement. You know the words of the unfaithful steward. What shall I do?
One man should die for the people, he says. One man should die for the people, and that the whole nation perish not. And this spake he not of himself. But being high priest that year, Caiaphas prophesied that Jesus should die for that nation. And not for that nation only, but that also he should gather together in one the children of God that were scattered abroad. Just as the Lord saw fit to use Balaam's ass to speak truth, Caiaphas is forced to prophesy, not maybe against his own will, but certainly isn't saying what he intends to. He's confessing the truth. He's confessing absolutely what is about to happen. And think about it, if it didn't include in the text here that not only for that nation, but he would gather together all in one the children of God, that's not really something that's even been embraced by the church yet at this point in the Lord's ministry. The Lord has referred to it. They've seen a couple Gentiles already healed and affected by the Lord's ministry, but it hasn't even been a focal point yet. House of Cornelius, we don't even know who he is. We haven't even met Saul yet, the apostle unto the Gentiles. But Caiaphas says this man will be made to die for this nation and all of the children of God and he will bring them together. These men feared what other nations, Rome in particular, might do if this Jesus were to continue to stir up causing trouble. It could threaten what power the Sanhedrin had been permitted to retain. I love that phrase. The word power and permitted in the same sentence is kind of funny. And it makes sense from the Sanhedrin standpoint. The Romans left the Sanhedrin, uh, this group, this, this, these decision makers, these leaders alone for the most part because the Jews as a people were with them in support of them, feared them, really. They answered to them. And as long as the Sanhedrin kept the Jews as a whole in check, Rome didn't need to mess with that. And in fact, if they did mess with that, they might have a revolution. They might have the Jews revolt against them for threatening the Sanhedrin. But if the people are following, let's say, Jesus, and not the Sanhedrin anymore, well, Rome has no more need of the Sanhedrin. The Romans would have their window to be done with religion once and for all, if that were permitted. Later, of course, Rome would find value in oppressive religion, they still have it. A lesson first taught by Jacob's sons to the world at the massacre of the Shechemites. The introduction and teaching of religion and the use of it to force others to comply. So Jacob taught the Jews and the Shechemites and then the Sanhedrin taught it to Rome and it's still with us today. Man's going to have to see that power if power is truly granted and forbidden, it's not truly power. If Rome was giving Sanhedrin power for their own selfish reasons, it wasn't actually power at all. Rome will come, dear Caiaphas, A.D. 66 to 70, and all will be brought low. Everything they feared will occur. There is but one true power in all the universe and is not limited by Rome, it's not limited by man, it's certainly not trusted to Biden to distribute. It is the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, administered, as we talked about this morning, from our cross for all the elect of God. 
The same power we see caring for Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. The same power that called Lazarus forth from the grave. The same power that will vacate his tomb for his place at the right hand of the Father. That power is not at rest. That same power put to death a Turkish prime minister. That same power might save a soul among us this very day. Jesus Christ is very much real, very much still alive. And though here he withdraws to Ephraim, he's found fruitful. Let us take note and let us tell others. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you once more for the opportunity, the privilege to preach and teach your word. We thank you, Father, for the fellowship meal today and for all those who are in attendance. We miss dearly our brother Jerry, Father, and we pray that you would bless him, feed him, see to his needs, reveal unto us if there is anything we can do to be a blessing. We pray for the upcoming hearing for Brother Robert. We pray for his children, his family, their well-being and their care, and that they be fed spiritually, Father. And we pray for whatever your will is in that situation. We pray, Father, for our children, those who are here with us today, but also the children who aren't, that maybe have been in the past. This is a dangerous weekend. We pray, Father, for their forgiveness. We pray, Lord, that you would not count this against them, that you would reveal the truth unto them and make for them, cause for them to believe. Bring them out of these wicked traditions. You've done it for everyone in here. Father, we trust you. We need you. We require you. We ask, Father, that we be found faithful in the opportunities to give the gospel, that it be not hit. We ask, Father, your mercy for where we failed you in the past. The sheer weight of that cross, Father, may it lead us to be active. May it lead us to move our feet, to stand with that mighty armor that Paul proclaimed. And we ask, Lord, all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.